All right. So I'm here with Lonnie uh, from Pops Diabetes. Really, really interested in hearing a lot more about Pops Diabetes, especially because Lonnie is going to be presenting at my conference here uh, coming up. Um, so do you want to tell me a little bit about what you guys do over there and, and what got your start in this industry? Yeah, thanks for having me, Frank. Yeah, you know, um, I've been in the healthcare industry for a long time now, 35 years, actually. Um, 30 years first at Medtronic, uh, the biggest medical device company in the world. And uh, I never really thought I was going to go into healthcare, but um, as I got into working for Medtronic, I found that healthcare, all about helping people, it really just came, became kind of my internal mission, you know? And uh, so that was really important to me. And uh, so five years ago, I left Medtronic, though to found um, along with two other people, uh, POPs. And uh, what we wanted to do with POPs is change the way healthcare was happening and essentially focus less on um, healthcare professionals taking care of patients and more about people taking care of themselves using technology, what I call the democratization of healthcare. And so that's really what we're trying to do now and my new mission in healthcare industry is the democratization of healthcare. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I've always been interested in that. Um, and uh, why do you feel there's so many uh, executives uh, that leave Medtronic and start their own startup? <laughs> well, uh, Medtronic is a great training ground, first of all. I mean, it, and it's a great, great company. I have nothing bad to say about Medtronic yeah. after my 30 years there. And I can't say anything bad anyway, because my wife still works there. So, uh, but, uh, <laughs> so uh, no, it's, 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 you know, I mean, it's a great company that people get a lot of great experience at. Um, you can imagine over 30 years, I was able to do everything from operation to design to development to yeah. project management, led a business unit for a while. And so when you do that, you don't know it, but you're training to be a CEO of a startup, you know, because you have to know all those different functional areas when you do it. And uh, for me, that's kind of my story. But I think, you know, there's just a really great stable of people at Medtronic and some of them, you know, just see the opportunity like I did and go for it. Yeah, definitely. Was it a, was it a huge culture shock going from uh, the, the uh, corporate culture to a startup culture? A totally different way of thinking. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, when it was just me and my other co-founder who were sitting together in a, in a garage, basically, yeah. um, I used to joke that I went from the biggest medical device company in the world to the smallest medical device company in the world. And so, I mean, when you're doing that, um, and the biggest thing that, that it comes to you is you spend much less time in a corporate culture, you spend a lot of time influencing others whether it's your peers because you need right. that functional area to get on board with what you want to do or your management team or whatever you're dealing with. And in, you know, startup culture, that influencing thing isn't there. You just, you have your mission, you know what to do and everybody's just doing it and you jump it's in and do it. More so than influencing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, and also this kind of thing where something big is happening, like, you know, maybe we're trying to do a quote for a big customer or client and we're trying to figure out what price we're going to get to. And at some point, your kind of mentality in the customer culture is there's always somebody else to approve that price. Right. But, you know, when it's just you and yourself, you kind of look over your shoulder and say, who's going to make this decision? It's like, oh, I am. <laughs> oh, man. I know that feeling. <laughs> and sometimes you choose the wrong price for everything. And you, of course. And you, and you stay with that price for a long period of time. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't have stayed for that long. You know, um, but uh, so regarding... Um, you know, wh where you're at right now, are you, how many employees do you currently have? Yeah, including contractors, we have about 20 employees at this point in time. 20 employees, okay, including yeah. contractors, great. 
Um, and, uh, you know, what interests you so much in, in, in diabetes? And can you go a little bit more into exactly what your, uh, your telehealth medicine technology does? Yep. So, yeah, just going back a little bit to kind of how this all started. So when I was at Medtronic, I saw two things happening. One is I saw the consumerism of healthcare. People wanting to take healthcare into their own hands. And we're all carrying around these really powerful computers that we call phones. And I'm like, you know, people are looking to take healthcare ownership. Um, wearables industry is blowing off the charts, et cetera. And then at the same time, I'm managing my diabetes. So I have adult onset type one diabetes. I got it in my thirties. No wow. idea why, but I have, it. I have to deal with it. How old were Sorry? you? How old were you when you got your diabetes? Uh, probably about 35 around that age or 38, something like that. And um, so <laughs> it, it just kind of came on. I started losing my vision and um, I didn't know why. And finally my eye doctor said, you need to go to the emergency room. I think you have diabetes. And I'm like, diabetes. I, I wow. thought I was here for eye trouble. But anyway, that, that was kind of my story. And um, I got it under control well and uh, been managing my life very well because of it. But what was amazing to me when I was doing that is I had a test kit, which is still the standard of care today. You maybe have seen them. If you know anybody with diabetes, people unzip them and they assemble it and they do their blood sugar test. And uh, for me, that test kit, which was my primary tool, was always sitting in my bathroom because I was out living my life, doing my thing. And, and that just wasn't going to be part of who I did. And then every six months, I'd go see a doctor for 20 minutes. And so I'm looking at this trend of the consumerism of healthcare and looking at how I'm managing my diabetes and saying, why is the way we're managing diabetes not changing? And so POPS was started really about enabling people to manage their diabetes while they're living their life. And so we do that by giving you Mina, your AI virtual coach in your phone, who's with you all the time, not just when you see your doctor. And then we combine with Mina a device we created that is the simplest way to measure blood sugar that's on the market today. It's two thirds the size of a cell phone, much smaller than those kits. There's no assembly needed. So I can literally, when I'm out jogging, which I jog a lot, I can um, you know, just, I, I can't do it while I'm jogging, but when I stop and walk, I can check my blood sugar with our device and know where I'm at. It's something I could never do before when I had that test kit. So um, that's really what POPS is all about. It's about not um, telehealth in terms of others watching you and managing you. It's about through Mina and this device enabling you to manage yourself. I love that, I love that. Why do you think it's so um, prohibitive to normal, average, everyday people, patients to take care of their own health? Well, I, I always say it's because of two things we've created over time. One is um, we've created this kind of uh, dependency model where we feel the only people we can go to to get real advice is a physician. Um, and, you know, so, the, you know, it's like we feel like every time we get sick, we got to go to the ER or we got to go to the clinic and so forth. And before I go to the second reason, just an interesting story about that with the coronavirus that we've been dealing with. Um, the stats I saw are that ER visits are down 75% from what they were before the corona visit. And that isn't because people are just having less emergencies. It's because people are being more self-sufficient and not necessarily jumping to the ER every time they have an issue. So that's right. an amazing stat. And I think it kind of speaks to the question you're asking about is, do we really need to do all of that stuff? Or are we just doing it because it's convenient to do? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, I think, I, I think uh, you know, doctors are required for sure when it comes to emergencies. Um, but how often do emergencies, real emergencies occur? That, that's um, the right question, yep. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think, you know, maybe 1% of the time, 
Yeah. I, I don't know what the right number is, but I, I think you're asking the exact right question there. None of this is about replacing physicians. It's about enabling physicians to spend their time doing the things that they really should be doing and helping right. people versus kind of very, very routine things where they really aren't needed. Yeah. Um, yep. And, uh, and then the second reason that, that I think we have make it so difficult today is because we continue to give people um, very traditional, what I'll call medical devices and not thinking about them like consumers. And so, you know, I look at the consumer industry like Amazon and uh, Apple and Google and, and these companies that have made it very easy for us to do the things that we do because that's where they're very focused, where the traditional medical industry hasn't been as focused on the consumer experience. Um, you know, the apps that go along with devices, the devices themselves. I mean, the yeah. standard care test kit that I use for my diabetes is still sitting in my bathroom, right? I mean, that's what most people are doing with those kind of test kits. And why isn't somebody changing that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's very difficult to to be treated well in healthcare for whatever reason. I don't know why. Um, it's, I guess it's just a system. Everybody's burnt out. Everybody's overworked, working long hours. You know, I, I, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, it's the system that just burns everyone out. I think. Yeah, I think it does. I, I mean, you talk to primary care physicians, and they're just overwhelmed. I mean, all they're doing is churning through as many people as they can each day. Um, and, uh, they would, they would welcome, I think the opportunity to spend more time with less people who really need their help. Um, and it would be more fulfilling to them too. Yeah, totally. And they can spend more quality time with people, right? Yep, exactly. Cause I think more so than any, uh, anyone are the physicians that can't spend quality time with their patients, you know, um, I think they're they're just as frustrated as the patients, and sometimes it doesn't show on the outside, right? But you know, yeah, I mean, they're obviously not going to say it to their patients while the patients are in the room. But you know, when you talk to friends of yours that are physicians or others, you know, that starts to come out. <laughs> yeah, my cousin's a physician. Um, I think he's seeing like thirty patients a day or something. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, when you think about that and what that means, <laughs> how could you possibly provide the proper care? To, 30, to, to that many people, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you figure he works six hours actually seeing patients, right? And that still gives him an hour for lunch and an hour to do records and stuff like that. You know, that means he's seeing five patients every hour, um, you know, which is what, you know, 12 minutes. So, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, it, it's insane. Uh, so I feel like most people, I asked this question on, on a lot of the podcasts. I feel like most people who get into healthcare um, have a personal reason to get into it. So because you had diabetes, do you feel that was an impetus to, to start this company? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was personally frustrated by why can't this be easier? And I tried multiple different things. And as a tech guy, you know, I was always looking around for the next great thing that was going to come down the pike. And Many things had great promise, but they never got through FDA or, you know, I mean, they just weren't real, basically. Um, and so meanwhile, nothing was really changing. The only thing that I tried that was really different was wearing a continuous glucose monitor. So those are the alternative to these test kits. Um, continuous glucose monitors, they get a lot of press right now because you see Abbott advertising them on the TV to wear it on your arm and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, they're great technology, but there's some issues with them in terms of accuracy and the fact that you have to wear a device all the time, which I didn't want to do. 
Um, and so after I tried to wear those, I've worn two different continuous glucose monitors in my diabetes journey and didn't like either one of them. Um, and so I quit wearing them. So I was back to my test kit and I was like, there has got to be an easier way. And actually, if you look at our website, our founding story that people kind of refer back to me several times is, uh, you know, I was up fishing with my two brother-in-laws who are my two co-founders and saying, you know, this is, you know, just ridiculous. I'm out on a boat, you know, and I'm trying to use this test kit and it just doesn't work. And, and uh, I said, there's got to be a better way. And that's when we started talking about how we're going to do it differently. Yeah. So tell me about like the early stages of your company. So, you know, when, when it was obviously a huge culture shock initially. Um, you know, how did you start the company? Were you kind of like a, a fish out of water? Was it, did it, did it feel like you were just trying to figure things out and you had no direction or what, what was your experience initially? Yeah, I, I, you know, I guess I would not say that we felt like we were, um, you know, fish out of water or lost a little bit. Um, there were certainly areas that I needed to learn, like raising capital, um, you know, going and uh, doing your budget presentation at a corporation to try to get your budget for the year is different than going out and raising capital and figuring out investors. But I had good advisors around me that I could call on, you know, ex-Medtronic people and others in the industry. Um, what we, one thing that we have here in the Minneapolis area, it is a, is a really great connected industry and um, uh, uh, we call it medical alley here. And so there are a lot of good people around to ask questions and get help from. And so with that, I felt like I was able to shore up the biggest thing I didn't know how to do, which is, you know, how to raise capital. But the rest of it in terms of putting a business plan together and then going and executing. And people have often asked us like our supply chain starts with a company over in Taiwan that we partnered with in the first six months that we started. Wow. And I've had other entrepreneurs ask me, how did you even know how to go find somebody in Taiwan? And I'm like, well, you know, my co-founder and I have both done this stuff for 30 years and have worked with companies in China and across the world and so forth. So I we love just it. Went and found them, you know, and we flew over there, we met them, we interviewed them and we said, yep, we want to work with these guys. I mean, but some people think that's just amazing. I mean, how could you possibly do that? And it feels just like us, like, well, that's what you do. <laughs> so that, that's kind of our starting story. But it, it was just two of us in a garage when we got started. And, uh, you know, we started literally with an idea on a piece of paper. We had nothing. And uh, for our first six months, we were fully self-funded. We went and built prototypes with that. And uh, once we got actual working prototypes, then we started talking to outside investors and it just kind of grew from there. By the way, I have my uh, cell phone on as well, just in case we disconnect on my laptop. Um, yep. So, uh, so you, you self-funded initially. Uh, and then have you, are you in your second round, first round? Yeah, so we did, after the self-funding, we did a uh, $2 million seed round. Um, and now last year we closed a series a, um, we're still doing a series a extension at this point in time, mostly because of the COVID virus changing strategies. I mean, we planned on going, doing a bigger raise this year, but then we decided it doesn't make sense. So yeah. we're, we're still working on our series a extension. So I'm curious just for, um, for people, for CEOs listening who are in the medical device space, um, what is the biggest difference between running a company and raising capital? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I actually get kudos from um, our board members um, because when we have board meetings, <clears throat> we spend the first two thirds of the board meeting talking about the operational aspects of what we're doing in terms of managing development, 
you know, our sales pipeline, et cetera. And yep. then we talk about capital. And I've had several of those uh, board members say to me, you know, so often companies we're working with, the first thing that we want to talk about is capital, raising capital. And they think that's their job. Um, but I think the most important thing that I would say as CEOs are thinking about this is your job is to run a company. And raising capital will happen if you can run a company really well. Um, and so, you know, setting your milestones and figuring out how you're going to do that and then kind of managing and project managing and doing all the things you need to do, hiring the right team members, um, that's running a business. Raising capital should be an after effect of running the business that if you've done that successfully, you should be able to attract investors just like you're attracting customers. Um, and uh, so that's kind of a little bit of how I think about it. I'm not sure if that's answering your question or not. No, no, I, I definitely think, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think where I was going was it's probably, it's probably very similar to getting, getting customers. It's, it it's, is. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to that. Yeah, I, 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 I basically have my customer pitch deck and my uh, sales or um, my investor pitch deck. They're very similar, little different, obviously. And uh, often I need to remind myself as, as now, because we're going back and forth all the time. Like, you know, this week, you know, there may be four investor conversations and 10 customer conversations. And yeah. I have to, wait a second, I'm talking to a customer now. I got to remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, would you say it's a lot more complex selling an investor? Than a customer? Yeah. Uh, yes, because there's just more, more um, yeah. facets of it. Like, you know, your IP and your capital strategy and, right. you, know, you, you know, your sales pipeline. Things you don't even think about talking to a customer about. So you, for a customer, you got to sell the product and that's pretty much it. For an investor, you got to sell the product and then all those other things, you know? And so that's why it's harder with an investor, I think. Yeah, it, they, they kind of... Uh... Lift, uh, lift the hood and figure out exactly what's going on in, in, in every aspect of your business. So, um, okay. So, uh, it's interesting that you, that you made that analogy, uh, between investors and customers. And, uh, and so w what have you found, uh, you know, from an investor perspective, what have you found, what would you say to an investor? Um, what advice would you give to them to make the process more efficient. What are some mistakes that investors have made essentially? I, I think if I could get, you know, uh, any advice to an investor, it would be just make it easier for the entrepreneurs by letting them know what you're thinking. You know, there's, there's so many um, investors that, you know, you do a call with like this one yeah. and they, they say some positive things and you're like, okay, I think there might be an opportunity here. And then you don't hear anything from them. You email them 10 times and you still don't hear anything and you just don't know what they're thinking. And so am I wasting my time by trying to pursue this and wasting their time? And, and I know it's this kind of investor thing. Well, I don't want to tell them no, because there might be an opportunity here, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready for yes yet, <laughs> but then tell us that, you know, I mean, it, it's just, I think the most frustrating part of raising capital in my mind is just the lack of communication. Yeah. And so, like, how are you reaching out to these investors? It's really, like, I feel like it's just one of the most difficult things you could ever do is, is get a raise capital. But, like, what were you doing? Uh, what would you do to get these, this, these initial investors to invest? Yeah, so for me, um, and I would think it's probably true for most people that I know as I talk to them, um, you know, the only, reason, only way I end up talking to investors is, you know, usually through an introduction. Um, introduction from, you know, uh, a board member, from one of my advisors, a network person I have. 
whether it's a venture fund or an angel investor, you know, it almost always comes through an introduction. Um, you know, sometimes uh, um, events like the uh, um, event we're getting to do with Capcom here is is a great way to start that introduction process. Um, and uh, but you know, then it goes. I mean, you can't apply on a website for funding, at least in my opinion. You can't, yeah. you know, cold call, email a whole bunch of people if you get a list and so forth. It needs to be through some type of introduction like that. Um, and then, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to actually get a phone call or a Zoom meeting with them, um, and, you know, that's really the way you got to start out. And personally, what I like to do, like I'm talking to investors who probably aren't going to be at the stage of investing in us for two years, but I'm still talking to them, introducing pops and just kind of bringing them along. Um, and then when we get to our right revenue rate and they're interested, you know, then they know who we are. So I am always trying to create, um, a relationship more than a selling thing you know so if i come to you and the first time i meet you i say hey frank i'm looking for a million dollars that's a lot harder than if i've developed a relationship with you kept you up to date have you seen the milestones that we're achieving and we're knocking out of the park and then i come to you a year later and say hey frank we're looking for a million dollars you're much more interested in having that conversation yeah because you developed the relationship first yeah, um, and, and you see some of the track record and the fact that you can execute and meet milestones, et cetera. What are the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in, in the business that you've, that you've run for the last uh, how many years? Uh, five uh, years. I, the, the biggest thing that we had to overcome and our biggest milestone to date was FDA clearance. Um, you know, uh, even though we're very experienced, uh, myself and others, around getting FDA clearances of devices because of our experiences prior to this, um, it's still a process and people would not even imagine how much testing and uh, evaluations and things you need to do, even for a relatively simple class two product. There's class one, class two, and class three. Class yeah. three is a pacemaker. This is a class two product that we have. And uh, still the amount of testing and paperwork you need to generate and so forth uh, is amazing. Uh, but the good news for us is um, once we submitted to the FDA, after several conversations with them along the way, um, we got our approval in five and a half months, which is shorter than the eight month average for a class two product. So we actually had it really good. Um, but wow. obviously that was a big milestone for us to celebrate. You, so that's probably you, been our biggest obstacle. What's what, do that? what do you attribute that to? You were, you were so quickly FDA approved. Um, I, it is in general, our team's experience. And so um, the uh, VP of clinical and regulatory that um, is part of our team has done this a lot. Um, I've been through many, many FDA um, clearances as part of my career, um, and several of our other people have had experience with the FDA. And then because Jennifer, our VP of Regulatory and Clinical, um, also had good advisors around her and so forth, we were able to kind of, you know, really map out the process really well, know what they were looking for, figure out, you know, when we should talk to the FDA and when we shouldn't. And when we should give to the FDA what we know that they were going to demand and when we should kind of push back on them and say, no, nope, we disagree with that. And, and the FDA wants to work with you. They really do. They're, you know, I know some people hold them up as a big, bad organization, but they're people too. And they're just trying to do their jobs and make sure the right products get it cleared for the market. And uh, if you can work with them in that manner, then, you know, um, it gets done. Definitely. Definitely. That's awesome. You have a great team, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a huge part of the startup deal is, you know, you need to have the right people with the right skill sets at the right time. Right. And that, that, that yeah. right time is a key part of it. I feel like having the, the having the right team entails 
um, picking people that are, are not only talented, but also have a commitment level that is above and beyond most people. Um, right. Like, because you can find somebody, I think the mistake I made initially was trying to find the most talented people, even though they weren't as committed. Yeah. And, and, and trying to like somehow sway them or like convince them to work with my company or be completely committed. Is that like, is that, have you found the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. Um, the startup industry is a different industry than just coming and you know gathering your paycheck. You're not Medtronic, where like everybody wants to work with you, like every like you know, <laughs> like when you have the Medtronic name, right? Once you have yeah. that, name, like there's not a lack of candidates, you know. Right. I mean, it attracts people. I agree. And so you and but you know, an example of what you're saying is uh, we hired a new college grad who had no experience, right? I mean, so I can't say she was the most experienced person, but man, she is committed and she'll go after and do anything. And, and I, I laugh sometimes about the things that I asked her to do because we're a small team still. And, and sometimes, you know, when she started uh, to almost two years ago now, you know, yeah. I would ask her to do things that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm asking somebody that's 23 years old and just got out of college to go do this. But she would go figure out how to do it. She'd make some mistakes along the way, but that's what you expect. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to appreciate people like that, that, yeah. uh, that, that are that committed, you know, and you don't know what causes them to be that committed. I mean, you, you never know. Um, yeah. but for whatever reason, maybe there's just chemistry there. I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think you're right. Some of it is chemistry. I mean, it's gotta be the right set of people and the right kind of cause and so forth that they're committed to. But I think a lot of it comes from their background and their, you know, their parents raising them and kind of values that were instilled upon them upon over time. You, you think know, that I think like, you, you know, how you, you know, how they were raised, can they, can they uh, fight their way out of how they were raised and, or, yeah, that's a, that's a, with that's a, sorry, that's a big, tough question. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I personally am of the belief that your values are pretty set unless you have some major outside influence that changes them. Right. You know, like, uh, God forbid, maybe you have somebody die in your family or a divorce or, you know, a child being born or something like that, that might affect kind of who you are and what your values are. But other than that, I think it's hard to just say, I'm going to go change my values. Mm. Yeah. And what, what values do you mean? Like, what do you mean like? Well, I mean, so, um, you know, we, uh, we were kind of talking about hard work, you know, like, the, like this uh, person I was referring to earlier. I mean, she'll just jump in and do anything. To me, that's a combination of courage and hard work, right? An ethic to go, you know, you know create a, an outcome based on something. So yeah. it's not just work, it's, you know, outcomes focused. Um, uh, for me personally, the four values that I always kind of, you know, tout and talk about are you need to have vision, you need to have courage to reach that vision, you need to have judgment to know when you're actually off track or, you know, need to do something different. And uh, you need to be authentic along the way. You can't just leave a whole bunch of dead bodies behind you. You know, and so if, you know, to me, that is what I look for just generally in any person that I'm trying to hire or work with. Oh, yeah. And if well, you have those four things, then I think, you know, we can make this work. Oh, there, there's my, there's, there's my uh, laptop. So I'm glad I prepared for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hold on one second. Um, yeah. Interesting conversation, man. I, I gotta say. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what do you, what do you, what do you think have been your business biggest successes regarding, um, you know, your, your company? Like what, what were some aha moments? What were some moments where you were like, wow, I can't believe we've achieved this milestone. Obviously FDA approval is huge. Right. Um, 
I feel like there's people, there, there's companies that have been in, in the FDA approval stage for like 10 years sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And they're obviously, like I said, our, our higher risk products that, that, that take longer. Right. I mean, so for a class two product, we did a really good job, but the average is eight months. Some people have been though, in, in that process for a couple of years. Um, but our biggest moment um, that I want to share um, is when we opened up our office after we moved out of the garage we were in the garage for about eight months and then we got funding and we moved out of the garage and opened our office. So this is four years ago. We hung an empty picture frame on our wall and we said the first person's life we change is going to go in that picture change picture frame. So we were running a clinical trial and um, there was a 17 year old boy. His name is Andreas. Um, who was in this clinical trial and after six months his A1C, which is the clinical measure of blood sugar came down by one and a half points. One and a half points is more than we could have imagined. I mean, that, wow. if for anybody who doesn't know A1C, that's like a major life-changing thing, especially for somebody that's 17 years old. And he fully attributed it to our product. Um, and so we actually brought him in um, for a filming session and he could do a little testimonial for us. But when he was there, I asked him, I said, so Andreas, you know, we had this picture frame and we wanted to put the first person's life we changed and you are that person. Would you be willing for us to take your picture and put you up in our office? And so today, and he was, you know, thrilled. Uh, today, when you walk in our office, the first thing you see is this picture frame with Andreas's picture in it, first person's life we changed. Because we that's what that? we're doing this for. We're on video right now. Do you, can you, can we see it? Oh yeah, I gotta walk out to it if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, 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 no problem. Yeah. Um, so Andreas came by uh, after that because he wanted to see it. Him and his uncle came by and took a picture of it. Um, but yeah, I'll uh, be at the front of our office here in a second. It's gonna be awesome. Oh, dude, I love that. Wow, that's amazing. So that was our vision is lowering the world's A1C and, and he was the first person, but you know, you got to start somewhere, one person at a time. Yeah. So now you, you guys probably have hundreds or thousands of people that you've helped, um, which is awesome. Uh, yeah. Di diabetes is such a prevalent uh, disease and it's, 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 it's like the gateway disease that leads to everything else. I think I mentioned this to you on a phone conversation, but like, I just know this from like family members that have had diabetes. It leads to everything else. It's the worst. It's like one of the worst diseases you can possibly have chronic diseases. It's like, you know, it, like you said, vision function, uh, your kidney function, heart disease leads to that it leads to a lot of different things. Um, your, your, your blood levels, sugar levels, all these things can, can shift your mood, can shift your, like your, your anxiety state, right? Like all of these things, uh, diabetes can impact. Um, it is the leading cause of blindness, leading cause of kidney failure, leading cause of amputations. And, and it's all because it's uncontrolled diabetes. None of these things have to happen. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm a pretty healthy person. Um, and I, and I live as a healthy person. Um, and I have had diabetes now for 20 years, right? So you don't have to have all those things, but you just need to choose that you're not going to let it get out of control. And, and that's the challenge with a disease like diabetes is it, it, it is becomes a self-management thing. And, and that's why we want to try to enable people to actually self-manage with a technology. The problem is that you have the same temptations as everyone else, uh, but you, because you have diabetes, it can really be life-threatening to eat something, you know, uh, sugar-filled, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, and again, that same thing. I mean, so 
um, you know, my mom, when she was still alive, you know, if I ate dessert, you know, she just like, oh my God, you can't have that. And I'm like, no, mom, I can have that. I just need to adjust for it appropriately. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's about control. It's about knowing what you're doing, um, you know, and, and, you know, not to necessarily bring it back to pops immediately, but the reason we give you Mina in your phone is for Mina to help you do that. And that's the whole idea of the democratization of healthcare is, um, you know, we theoretically could all do the democratization of healthcare today without anything. Um, just, you know, take more control of your life and, and own your health. Um, but just like uh, Uber was enabled by technology, you know, we're trying to enable, you know, the democratization of healthcare through technology and, and make it easier for you and I to do that. Do you think diabetes is reversible? Yeah. Um, so it's debatable, debatable, right? But yeah. Yes and no is the answer to the question. Um, you know, if you look at the spectrum of people with diabetes from type one who basically have non-functioning beta cells in your pancreas, yeah. I will say the answer That's is no. impossible. Yeah, of course. So, so the, but on the other end of that spectrum, the people who are essentially what I call the diet and exercise diabetes, you know, exercise more, eat less. Yes, I think that is reversible. And so it kind of depends on where you're at in that spectrum. Yeah, there's people on both sides of the equation that think it's not reversible, even with type 2 diabetes, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure there are. Um, and I, I think there's more going on in our bodies than we really understand today. Um, you know, I'm a huge microbiome fan, and, um, you know, we just don't understand the viruses and bacteria living in us and how they affect our health as well as we should. Um, I think 100 years from now, we'll be looking back at us now and saying, what were those guys thinking? Um, you know, just like we look back a hundred years ago and say, what were those people thinking when they were, you know, shocking people and doing all kinds of weird stuff to them and, or letting blood out of them, you know, blood, blood letting, now, yeah, blood letting, yeah. 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 A hundred years from now, people are going to look back at us and say, what were those guys thinking? That's true. That's true. But, but why, 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 are, why do you think so, so many people are in the healthcare field? Some, not, not a lot actually. Well, it really depends on on, on uh, who you're talking to, but I feel like a lot of people in healthcare are very dogmatic, and isn't that an impediment to progress sometimes? You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's a lot or not. I mean, I'm not sure about what the number is there, but um, yeah, that I don't think that helps. I mean, um, if 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 the kind of pure scientists kind of feel like, well, we understand everything, and this is how you should do it, and this is the way you should be living your life, and so forth. Um, I personally think we're much less educated about that than we think we are. You know, and again, I'm just going to use the microbiome as one example only because I'm, a, uh, you know, knowledgeable about it. But, you know, every one of us has a different microbiome inside of ourselves. And yet uh, we don't really understand how those things affect our health. But why we're seeing so much diabetes, why we're seeing so much asthma, why we're seeing so much allergies and so forth, I think has much more to do with environmentally how we've changed our microbiomes over the last 50 years and yet we don't understand that uh, you know and so it's pretty hard for somebody to be really dogmatic about um, well this is the way we should be doing it when we're so yet in the unknown yeah i think like the companies uh, you know presenting at the at the conference i mean they're just outstanding you know and it really validates you know what i'm doing you know because obviously if i can help you guys get funding you help you help more patients. That's awesome, right? Yep. You help um, more people like Andreas. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. That's that's what validates you know what what I'm doing. Um, I think, and uh, I like the life science space a lot. 
um, I didn't I didn't know I was gonna like it this much. Uh, and I, I don't I wish I would have uh, been more interested in in it earlier on, but yep. I, I just wasn't. Yeah. Um, and uh, when did you start becoming interested in health in general? Yeah. Well, so when I started at Medtronic, um, my, I, I won't go into the whole detailed story, but um, when I was trying to interview for a job coming out of college, I was trying to go into the aerospace industry. My goal was to work on stuff that was going into space. I, I totally wanted to do that. Um, and I, like threw, Tesla. <laughs> through a fluke, I ended up with this interview with Medtronic and, and um, they brought me down to their facility and I fell in love with it. Um, ended up taking the job at Medtronic. Even then though, I thought, yeah, I'll work here for two or three years and then I'll go on and do something else. I'll maybe go back to my aerospace idea or whatever. But at some point, um, you reach that mission moment in my mind, you know? And so part of the reason we had the idea for hanging the picture of Andreas up on the wall is because when I worked at Medtronic for about 25 of those years that I was at Medtronic, I had a picture hanging up on my wall of a three-year-old child. And the reason that picture was hanging there is because um, when I was about three or four years into my career, um, I was asked to go find a speaker for an employee event. And, uh, and, you know, so I ended up finding this three-year-old child that had a pacemaker implanted uh, because his heart didn't work and he was life dependent on this pacemaker. And uh, so we went to meet his parents and, and the child in their living room. And I still remember to this day, you know, talking to his parents and watching this, you know, three-year-old jumping up and down on the couch and pulling up his shirt, showing me the scars from his heart surgeries and so forth. And thinking the only reason this kid is alive is because of the work I do. And wow. that's when you know, you know, when you have that mission moment, that changes your life. And that's changed my next 30 years of my career. Yeah. And it led to us starting Pops and putting Andreas's picture up on the wall. So, wow. Yeah. wow. Do you have children? I have one daughter. Yeah. She's an adult now. Yep. Oh, wow. You have a daughter too. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. A brand new daughter. I like your shirt that says promoted to daddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys are watching this on, uh, on video. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing a shirt that says promoted to daddy. <laughs> uh, That's yeah, an important role, by the way. <laughs> yeah. What do you think will be at, what, what do you think will be in, um, I, I think just seeing the, the, the companies that, uh, that are presenting, man, the, these companies are amazing. I mean, we have, uh, you know, I, I think your company is absolutely outstanding. Um, you're going to be helping a lot of people for sure. And uh, we have other companies that, um, uh, uh, one in particular, it's a uh, MRI, portable MRI device, which is very interesting. Um, we have uh, syringe-free vaccine, uh, uh, syringe-enabled uh, 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 needle, needleless uh, device to, cool. to inject uh, vaccines. We have... Uh, AI imbued radiology, just awesome, awesome, awesome company companies uh, presenting and man, it just it just awesome. Um, so regarding uh, you know how how old is your daughter now? If you don't want me asking, twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah. Okay. So she's very young still. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's say the next like thirty years. What do you think we'll be at in healthcare in the next thirty years? Yeah, I, I and, and may not be any surprise to you that I really do believe the biggest thing that's going to happen in healthcare in the next 30 years or in the next 10 years even really is instead of us thinking so much like 
brick and mortar clinics and people going and sitting in a waiting room and then going in and seeing a doctor that we're going to think virtual clinics and uh, we're going to think democratization of healthcare. People take healthcare in their own hands through technology. You know, you're going to, you're going to start to see diagnostics like this MRI thing that you were mentioning is becoming more portable and so forth. Eventually that kind of technology is going to be in people's homes, you know, and so it's going to be much more about you taking care of yourself and going to a clinic or hospital when you really, you know, need it to happen. Um, and, you know, I use the examples all the time of, of things like, uh, uh, well, I mentioned Uber earlier, you know, there used to be, you were fully dependent on taxis taking you place to place. Yeah. And then we saw the democratization of transportation through technology that enabled Uber. You could say the same thing in the banking industry or in the airplane industry. And I'll True. use my daughter since you brought her up in two examples. So, you know, I was telling my daughter one time when she was downloading her app, you know, to, to go fly someplace, you know, in a boarding pass on her phone. I said, you know, you won't believe this, but at one point in time in my career, when I was taking a business trip or a vacation, I needed to drive to the strip mall where Delta Airlines had a um, office in the strip mall to go get my ticket printed out because that was the only kind of ticket that I could use to get on the airplane. And she was like, what? There was like Delta ticket offices and strip malls. And I'm like, yeah, that's the way it used to work. Um, and, you know, she's, she just can't even imagine that. You know, 30 years from now, her daughter's not going to imagine that you went and sat in a waiting room to see a doctor. What? Um, you know, <laughs> that, that's the way people are going to think about healthcare in the future. I think my, I think, uh, my generation's thing is uh, CDs, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy because CDs are like, they're they're like a new thing almost <laughs> so it's like and then i i realized there's it's so crazy as you grow up i'm just i'm just thinking like my daughter is not going to know like all these tv shows that i watched yeah it's crazy when you think yeah, about it it is yeah. it, it, it so much in our lifestyles changes so fast we just don't recognize it i mean you're you're at kind of this you know point uh, major point in your life where you're now you're starting to think about through your daughter's eyes what's going to happen and all of a sudden you start to say wow the world's going to look a lot different through her eyes <laughs> i know right it's crazy um when she's like let's say 30 i don't know i mean i i think healthcare is going to look a lot different for sure um there's a lot of things that do you think like people like Elon Musk will get into healthcare? I feel like that. Yeah, I, I don't know if Elon Musk specifically will, but um, you know, the consumer companies are absolutely going to get into healthcare. You know, uh, um, I, I, I talked to somebody recently who had a healthcare company that Virgin Pulse bought. Um, you know, and and so you know, why did Virgin Pulse buy healthcare? You know, but they're getting into healthcare or. You know, I, there's no doubt, obviously, that, you know, places like Google through Verily are getting into healthcare and Amazon clearly has already declared getting into healthcare. You know, I mean, so it's, yeah, that when I talk about virtual clinics, um, I don't think we'll necessarily be talking about the names in healthcare we talk about today. I think we'll be talking about the Amazons of the world. Wow, that's so interesting that uh, tech is going to take over. Uh, the healthcare industry, but wh why do you think they've been so slow to uh, advance? Well, so uh, just using an Am Amazon as an example, I mean, they have launched healthcare with a subset of people. I believe it's only with their employees in a certain part of the region. Um, and I don't want to misspeak about Amazon. I'm not an expert enough on them, but um, I think they're doing it um, uh, appropriately. Um, instead, you know, the healthcare is a little bit different, right? I mean, everybody thinks yeah. healthcare very personally. And so I think you need to be cautious and do it in the right way. But I think these companies definitely are making advances from the things that I read and see.
I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, so thank you so much for doing the podcast with me. I really, really appreciate it. What do you think about branding on like these mediums like podcasting and YouTube? I mean, it, it's very hard to express how, how much of a benefit this has been for me uh, to do things like this. Um, but like uh, from the perspective of somebody that really isn't all that engaged in like podcasting and YouTube and things like that, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I, I have uh, been very active in the last year since we commercialized trying to get out and make ourselves visible. And so I think that does become an important part of your brand. Um, and so this is probably the seventh podcast that I've recorded in the last six months. Um, and, and we do lots of posting and so forth because we feel like we have a different approach to healthcare. And so you need to get out and tell people about it. So I think all of these kind of new mediums that people are getting into podcasts or obviously all the social yeah. media and so forth it's, are a really important part of your brand. It's, it's like the first time in history where small brands can compete with huge brands. Yeah, I, that's a great point. <laughs> I, I love the way you said that. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So um, cool, man. Well, if somebody wants to get a hold of you who's listening, who has listened to this podcast, how would they do so? So uh, I'll give you the company way and then my personal way. So the company is... By the uh, way, don't provide your phone number. Right now yep. we're getting anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 downloads per uh, episode. And we'll eventually get to 50,000 to 100,000 per episode. So I won't share your, your, your phone number. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you the best way to get a hold of me then. So um, go to our website at uh, popsdiabetes.com. And through our website, you can do a contact us and, and get to me that way. Um, the other thing you can do is follow me on Twitter at Lonnie Stormo, L-O-N-N-Y-S-T-O-R-M-O. Awesome. Hey, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. and look forward to uh, conversing with you again soon. Sounds good, Frank. Thank you very much.